Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Guys and a Chainsaw. I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. Well, let's request extravaganza right now. Actually, two people requested today's film, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Frank and Karthik. So to Frank and Karthik, thank you so much for requesting this 2019 film because I was super excited uh, for the excuse to watch this. You know, normally we don't do these more recent movies, but we're going through requests, and I remember this book series so well from when I was a kid. I think you have to, Craig, right? Am I mistaken? Oh, yeah, yeah. This was the thing. The first of these books was came out in 1981, which is actually earlier than I thought. Uh, the second one in 82. Four, and I think the third one in 92 or 89, just before the author Alvin Schwartz had, uh, died. He was a very prolific children's author and journalist, did quite a few books, but definitely most famous for this series of books. And it's not just his writing, which is actually, it's a collection of urban legends and folktales, many of which I, had, as, as a kid, you know, being pretty young, had never heard before this. So this is a good way to bone up on your urban legends and folktales, is to just get all three books in this series and plow through them. They're all super creepy. They're the kinds of campfire stories and bedtime stories that people tell to get scared, um, mostly from American folklore, but probably the thing that really made this series work were the illustrations that go along with it. I, I just elevated this book, like, to 11. Yeah. Stephen Gamble did the illustrations. Now, he's still alive. Uh, he's illustrated many, many, many books, but he also is probably most famous for illustrating this series of books. And there's just something about the illustrations. They're abstract enough and also a little gory mm -hmm. and extremely creepy, but they're in black and white and they're in this, again, semi-abstracted pen and ink thing to just kind of be acceptable, but very edgy <laughs> yeah. for kids. So my parents, who were pretty protective, not super protective, but could get pretty protective about what I read and what I watched, they thought this these books were fine for me. But libraries uh, all across the country... We're getting inundated at one point, I think at various points in history, um, requests from parents like, take these books off your shelves. They're too gory. They're too scary. They don't, they're not for kids. Well, they are for kids. Kids can handle material like this. They really can. And I personally feel like they should. But in any case, these creepy ass stories, along with these creepy ass illustrations, just make for three wonderful, wonderful books. And it is the subject of this movie. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I hadn't seen this movie. I didn't watch it last year when it came out. I fully expected this to be like an anthology-type movie with a wraparound story. And I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised to see that it wasn't. So that's going to be really interesting to talk about, because that, you would think, would be your first approach, right? Is to just uh, take a bunch of the stories in this book and anthologize them and then make a, just sure. kind of a series of movies out of it. But that is not the direction that the producer, Guillermo del Toro, wanted to take with this. And I think it was a, a pretty decent choice. So anyway, Craig, uh, what is your history with this movie? Uh, well, I saw it shortly after it came out. Um, I was excited to see it, too, for the same reasons that you were. I mean, I grew up with these books. I, I, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but young, probably, like, primary school. Um, and these books, I remember, like, the most exciting thing for me in primary school were 
book fairs. Like, yeah, it, book fairs were it was like Christmas. You know, mm. like these outside companies would come to your school and set up these huge displays of books. And I always uh, remember seeing these books there. And of course, I convinced my parents somehow uh, to get them for me. Not because of the content that I had to convince them, but because we were poor. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I've i always been into horror ever since I was a little kid. My dad was into it, and at first, you know, I kind of tried sneaking around watching movies, you know, from behind the couch uh, when he didn't know. And they very quickly just realized that I was into it and kind of let me see whatever I wanted to see. Um, Mm. But these books, they were as frightening to me in a fun way as a lot of those horror movies that I would sit and watch with my dad. Even though, you know, the stories are really simple. Most of them are a page or a couple of pages long. But like you said, the illustrations were just fantastic. And I remember sometime, gosh, I don't know, it's probably been 10 years ago or more, they reissued these books with different illustrations from a different illustrator. And as soon as I heard that they were going to do that, I jumped on Amazon or eBay or something and swiped up copies of the original three because I wanted to make sure that I had in my possession Mm. those originals with the original illustrations. Well, I guess that the new edition didn't go over particularly well. I don't know whose idea that was. I think it was a really foolhardy idea because the illustrations were a large part of the appeal uh, originally, and I think that they've gone back uh, since then to the original illustrations. But yeah, I loved the books. Uh, I was really excited to see the movie, and I was pleasantly surprised because I expected this to be a kid's movie, and one could make the argument that it is, but it's a little bit atypical in terms of horror movies for kids because I think this movie is genuinely scary, and it doesn't pull punches the way that a lot of horror movies for kids do. Mm. Um, the stakes the stakes are high uh, in the movie, and people die, and well, presumably, and not just the bad guys. <laughs> yeah, some of the some of the good guys and the people that you're rooting for get it in this movie too, uh, and that's kind of atypical. And I appreciate it. Uh, I still think that it's something that young people who are into this kind of thing can handle, but uh, it's a little bit darker than I had anticipated, and I was pleasantly surprised by that. Yeah, me too, and I would say it's still a kid's movie, but it's definitely on that PG-13 edge of, uh, maybe not your elementary school student, maybe your upper elementary or middle school kid could watch this. Yeah. I think I, as a sixth grader, would have eaten this movie up. Sure. I was a little atypical in that, and just a lot like you, I think. But yeah, it does really do a fine job of riding that edge. It's got a little bit of gore in it. It's got a surprising amount of violence, yeah. but it's not exploitative in that way. It's just these are the creepy things. These are the creepy monsters. It's all in service to the story. And where it could go further, it doesn't. So, you know, it's it's a pretty decent mix. And I think Guillermo del Toro is kind of the perfect guy 
to do this. In a way, the movie reflects the book in that tone. Yeah. Um, it is a little gory. It's a little gross. It's a little spooky. It's a little scary visually and the content, but not so far as the, you would say this is really inappropriate for children, like reading some Stephen King novel or something like that. Right, right. So it rides that line, and he's good at that. You know, he did Pan's Labyrinth. He did uh, a movie called, was it Are You Afraid of the Dark? Is that right, with the little creatures running around uh, yeah, in the darkness? Yeah. Which I kind of see more as a kid's movie as well, but it's also genuinely scary, I think. And and that's a remake, actually, of, of another film. So Yeah, gosh, I think you have the title wrong. I think it's... Don't be afraid. I don't know, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah. So, yeah, Del Toro was the producer, and I definitely see his influence here, um, but the director is a guy named Andre Overdahl, who I think is Norwegian or or something like that. He did Troll Hunter, which was a great movie. Have you seen that movie? It's been on my list forever, and I haven't seen it yet. You should check it out. It's really good. Mm. He also did a movie, an English-language movie, called The Autopsy of Jane Doe, which is kind of a weird movie, but also really atmospheric, and I really enjoyed it. So the director, too, is a really talented guy. And it shows. I mean, the movie is really well made. It's really cool to look at. Lots of interesting visuals. And good story, which I feel like we better get into because the movie's only an hour and 48 minutes long. I took so many notes because so much (laughs) happens. I I mean, obviously, we're probably going to have to skip some things, but it it hits the ground running and it doesn't stop until the last scene, really. I, I was pretty impressed by how much content there was. And and, I, and like I said earlier, I was really impressed that it wasn't an anthology film. I couldn't believe that. I, I really expected that, and, and that's not what we got. Yeah, well, there, another movie came out right around this time. R.L. Stein. Uh, what were his books? Goosebumps. Goosebumps, yeah. There was a Goosebumps movie that did something very similar to this one in that they incorporated... Uh, all the stories, or not all, but some of the more famous stories into a larger narrative, I think was less success than this movie. I saw that movie too, it starred Jack Black. It was all right. Uh, I thought it was okay. Um, I thought kids might like it. I wasn't a huge fan. I think that this one was more successful in the way uh, that they put it together. And maybe that just has to do with the content. I don't know. But uh, Mm. the movie opens up with a monologue from our main character, whose name is Stella, played by Zoe Coletti. All these young actors... Yeah, I, I don't really know them from anything. It could just be because I'm old. You know, they may, <laughs> the kids out there may know these folks, but I don't. But it starts out with a monologue that's repeated again at the end. Stories heal. Stories hurt. If we repeat them often enough, they become real. They make us who we are. They have such power. This I learned on the very last autumn of our childhood. And then it cuts to 1968. We're in Mill Valley, Pennsylvania, which is a fictional town, potentially based on a real town uh, in Pennsylvania where this mill stoked the economy of this small town, but eventually the mill, when it was a paper mill and when paper products, uh, for example, the U.S. mail started uh, demanding less paper because of electronics and technology, they kind of went under. Um, So there's a little tiny bit of basis in reality there, but fictional place. And we just get this kind of brief panoramic kind of view of some of our characters. We're introduced to Stella, uh, as I already mentioned, kind of our narrator main character. We see her in her room, which is the walls are covered with all these old horror movies. Um, And we see that she's a writer and she's writing her own stories. 
and she's kind of seems like you know your typical atypical teenage girl maybe a little bit angsty not really in with the popular crowd has kind of her own little band of misfits um her friends are augie uh played by gabriel rush and chuck austin zazure i think and it's halloween night and they are going to go out for one last hurrah. I guess Stella kind of feels like they're kind of getting old for this Halloween stuff, but they're going to go out for this one last hurrah. And they're all in costume. Augie is, what did he say he was, like a Perot or something? He, he's a clown. Yeah. <laughs> he's a clown. He's supposed to be a highfalutin clown. Yeah, he's like just a high a art, whatever. <laughs> uh, Stella's a witch, and Chuck asked his mom to make him a Spider-Man costume costume but she took it very literally and just made him a spider man (laughs) that was hilarious (laughs) which is pretty funny and right away uh, they play a prank on the town bully who is Tommy who is a jock of some indeterminate sport and uh, he's got a, a group of goons that he runs around with and he's also on a date with Ruth, played by Natalie Ganzorn, who is also Chuck's sister. But these three kids prank, it, it's a really clever prank. They load up their Halloween sacks with gross, nasty stuff. So when Tommy and his goons drive by and try to steal their candy, they actually steal this, you know, bag of nasty crap. And then when the guys the jocks turn around to come back for their revenge or whatever they throw flaming dog poop at them which goes in the car which is, seems kind of dangerous <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is a prank you could kind of get away with in the 60s uh. right <laughs> right and it's set it's so interesting to me that this movie is set in 1968 uh, we're constantly reminded of that because it's on the night's of the election it's like the day before and the day of the election the vietnam war is going that is a thread Uh that goes through the film as well i was really i don't know i was looking for thematic tie-ins here maybe i picked up on a few but i i did wonder if i was missing something here did you get a sense for why it was so important that the election be going on the vietnam war and this be set in 1968 or, or was it just a well, 1968 was a really rough year, <laughs> right? Yeah. If I remember correctly from history, you know, the Vietnam War was going on. I, I feel like um, the Kent State Massacre was that year. Nixon was up for, I don't remember if it was election or re-election, uh, but it's it's his night. The biggest one that I saw was how a lot of the movie is about fear and anger and how fear and anger can be really destructive forces and it was a really scary time with you know the conflict in vietnam going on and the nation was really divided about that and we were sending our young men uh off to vietnam in what many thought was you know not something that we should be involving ourselves with and there were a lot of casualties and and it does end up being kind of a thread about you know kind of overcoming fear so i i i think that maybe is why they chose to set it in that time period it worked for me and i was really happy that it was set in this time period because you know i love contemporary horror and you know i love the modern amenities that we have and things but some of the tension gets taken 
out of stories when people are so easily connected. Yeah. You know, I, I like that we just don't we don't have to have the oh, we're out in the middle of the forest so I don't have cell reception. Like <laughs> I get so sick of that conversation in movies now. Yeah. So I, I like that, you know, these people are just a little bit more isolated because they're not so connected by technology and that kind of raises the stakes a little bit so i was pleased that they chose to set it in an earlier time yeah i, I agree with you I, I felt if anything that was a that was a good aspect yeah the uh the bullies chase them um to a drive-in where they hide in this guy's car who they don't know and his name um is ramon played by Mar- michael garza Nice looking kid. I guess he had to uh, submit auditions for this two or three times before he was cast, but he was really interested in getting into it. And eventually the casting director changed, and so he submitted one last shot and he got in. And he's this guy they don't know, but he lets them in their car to hide from the bullies. The bullies eventually find them um, and hurl some racist stuff at Ramon because. He's of a different ethnicity. I don't know. They call him... Wetback. Yeah. Because they're in public, nothing really goes down here. You just know that the jocks know who they are and they're after him or whatever. But they eventually go away for the time being. And Stella says, well, it is Halloween. Ramon, do you want to see our local haunted house? And he's like, sure, why not? So they go check out this haunted house. And that's where we get kind of the backstory for the spooky stuff that's going to be going on for the rest of the time. Yeah, Stella seems to know a lot about the local legends, probably because she's really interested in writing and interested in horror and this kind of stuff. Uh, And this house belonged to a very wealthy family who owned the mill at one time. And the legend is that they had this young girl that nobody had ever seen before. Like, they were embarrassed by her appearance or something. So there were no pictures of her that existed. Nobody had ever seen her, but they kept her locked up in the house. She would tell stories through the walls of her internal prison there to people. Scary stories. Uh, And then we end up getting a lot more backstory about why she was locked up and kind of why the family was embarrassed and some intrigue and things that was going on with the family themselves. But at this time, they're just exploring a creepy sort of haunted house. And Ramon, when when he's with uh, Stella, finds a little opening in the kitchen that leads to a downstairs cellar, really elaborate downstairs cellar area that even has a chamber within a chamber, and that turns out to be where Sarah was kept. So they find her old room, and it's really creepy and spooky, and Stella finds a book in there. And this book, when she opens it up, is Sarah's handwritten book of stories. And it's not illustrated, um, and not even all the pages are written on. Only really the first, I don't know, third or quarter of the book has stories written on it, and the rest of it is blank. And at this time, people, the the bullies have followed them to this house, and they uh, lock them in the basement. And as they're begging to be let out, and uh, the girl, Aruth, who's still with the bullies, is like, come on, come on, let my, let, you know, let my brother out and stop doing it. Uh, this guy opens up the door and shoves her down there as well with them and closes it. I don't know, was he like, he just acted like he was on something the whole time, like like he was on some kind of drugs, or was he just drunk? I don't know what it was, but... He was drunk, yeah. I mean, okay. he, he, 
he's a pretty flat character. I mean, he's just painted as <laughs> as the bully a and dick. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that that's kind of for a purpose because he's the first one to get dispatched. You know, true. <laughs> you don't want to like him too much, but uh, yeah, I mean, the the whole deal with her telling the stories through the wall. The the big controversy was supposedly after she told these kids these stories, they would go missing, and there were. You know, there's records of, during that time period, all of these children going missing. So, you know, there was this stigma around her and around the family, and the rumor was that she hung herself uh, at uh, at some point uh, in the house, and then after that, the family kind of went away. But when they're down there and they, they find that book, they get locked in. Um, another part of the legend is that if you came to the house after dark and you asked sarah to tell you a story she would um but then you would die so of course stella (laughs) when they're locked down there she's like okay sarah tell us a story and then spooky thing like they hear spooky noises and somehow mysteriously the door opens even though nobody else is there we already know that there definitely is supernatural stuff going on too because at one point chuck gets separated for the rest of them from the rest of them in the house and he hides in a closet to try to scare Augie but when he opens up the closet just to peek out it's as though he's been transported back in time and he's you know the 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 house is lit and it looks new there is a creepy old lady and like a doberman sitting there and so he closes the door again and when he opens it again it's gone but obviously weird stuff is going on and once they finally get out of there Stella's wish for a story comes true she she flips through the book and she flips past the last page but then when she flips back the last blank page has been filled in uh and the title of the story is harold and she touches the ink which by the way is supposed to be the blood of the children that sarah killed and it's fresh it smears and harold is the story of this uh scary scarecrow that we've seen before it's a scarecrow on tommy's family's farm and she starts reading this story and we see it playing out tommy goes home his mom's mad at him because it's late and he's drunk and she says you were supposed to deliver eggs to this family across the field or whatever and he's like do i have to do it now And she's like yeah you have to do it right now stella is reading this story about tommy delivering eggs and what's going on and what happens is this really pretty frightening uh scarecrow that's like crawling in bugs the bugs are crawling out of its eye sockets and out of its mouth and stuff it comes to life and at first it just kind of repositions itself at different places in the field so tommy keeps coming across it but eventually it just full-on comes to life tommy grabs a pitchfork and pitchforks it but it doesn't have any effect on it and the scarecrow pulls the pitchfork out of itself and then pitchforks tommy yeah and you (laughs) see it come out of his chest and the blood coming out of his shirt and then there's a really pretty great you know cgi effect where tommy becomes a scarecrow like the straw starts growing out of his mouth and his ears and his hands turn into scarecrow hands granted it's dark which is good but it looks pretty darn good and i have to say just from this one scene alone i'm a little bit surprised that they got the pg-13 rating this is pretty brutal for pg-13 
it is to brutal. have a kid. I mean, I, he's a teenager, but he's still a kid. Get brutally killed in this way. I, I didn't see it going that dark, especially that fast. And that may be really the most violent death. Mm. Um, or at least the the goriest, I guess maybe. It, yeah, it was surprising, and uh, you know when you see those tines come through his stomach, I was like, oh my gosh, that was crazy. But I don't remember there actually being blood. I remember there being straw from the very get go that came out from around where those tines were. But um, I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I don't. Maybe remember. you're right. But maybe that was the only way they got away with it was because it was so supernatural and there wasn't any blood involved that uh, but still it's very very disturbing right later on we see him you know we see this scarecrow in the middle of the field is dressed like tommy i guess the idea is now tommy is the scarecrow right i don't remember the story from the book but it's clear as day to me that they took the visual uh, design of this monster is directly from the illustrations in the book. And they've done that with the monsters that we encounter through here. It's very clearly they've been taken. Whether they were taken from another story and plopped in this one or whatnot, they've still definitely taken the character designs from the illustrations and made them, you know, put them in the movie. Which I liked that aspect of it as a fan of the books. Me too. It was nice to see that nod to it, right? Yeah. After that happens, Stella and Ramon go out to investigate because they've heard that Tommy's missing and they and she's read this story. And they go out to the field, and that's when they discover the scarecrow dressed like him. But of course, what can they say? You know, they can't really tell anybody this book. She tries to return the book. She goes right back to that place. She goes down in there uh, to the basement, and she puts the book right back on the shelf. In the meantime, Ruth has this... Oh, gosh, I knew that I knew where this was coming, going right away because I remember the story so well from the book. But uh -huh. R Ruth has a little bump on her face that from from probably she thinks like from when she was in the uh, going through all that mess in the mansion or whatever that she got a spider bite. And uh, it's just kind of bothering her a little bit. We get a little bit of um, precursor to what's about to happen to her with that. But uh, when they come back, the book has reappeared. Ramon is standing there reading it in her bedroom, and she's like, where did you get that from? And he's like, oh, it was, it was right here. You, you know, you had it. She's like, I put that book away. And he's like, well, it's right here now. And then they open the book, and as they're looking at the book, a page starts writing itself. My mother was digging at the edge of the garden when she saw a big toe. It looks nice and plump. She said, I'll put it in the stew. What kind of story is that? Augie! Stella! Augie, do not eat anything! Listen, you're in the next story. Whatever you do, do not eat anything. I remember that one. That was one of the ones that I vividly remembered. Like you said, these are urban legends. Um, and so... Even in the story, what or, or the books, what you're reading is one version. I mean, these stories have been passed around forever. And then, you know, in the story, somebody, you know, she makes the stew, she eats the stew, and then the corpse comes back, where's my big toe? Well, like you said, they're scared because they see Augie's name. But of course, he's not taking it seriously. It seems, you know, stupid or like a prank or whatever. But... He also has fished out this big pot of stew out of his refrigerator. And I just thought that this whole setup was so funny because he's on the phone with his mom and he's being snarky like a teenager complaining about his stepdad and how she's never home. And, and then he's like, well, I guess I'm just going to eat the stew then. And you don't hear her side of the conversation, but he's like, the stew in the refrigerator. Well, somebody made it. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, 
And so he pulls it out and he's spooning around in it, and like you see the toe float up to the top. Oh, it's god. so gross. Oh god. Uh, and eventually, you know, they're they're screaming at him over the walkie-talkie. Don't do it. Don't, don't do eat it. anything. Yeah. They don't even know he has this stew, but. Uh, he does. He eats it, and like he takes one bite of it, then he takes another, and he gets the whole toe in his mouth. Oh, oh god, it's so <laughs> disgusting! At least he spits it out. Yeah. But, I mean, the implication is he ate he ate more because he you know flings it away and knocks the pot over, and on the floor, in the pot, there's like an eyeball and just random chunks Ugh. of meat. It is disgusting, and he's retching. And he goes upstairs. Meanwhile, they're kind of narrating the story to him. They're like, you're going to hear somebody saying, you know, where's my toe? Where's my toe? And they're like, do you hear it? Do you hear it? He's like, no, the only person I hear saying that is you. And then after like the third time, suddenly he does hear something faintly. It freaks him out and he drops the walkie-talkie and he kind of runs upstairs. And as he goes into his bedroom, we see this corpse come into the house without a toe. (laughs) It comes up the stairs, it goes down the hallway, and it is disgusting. And it, again, it looks like one of the most vivid illustrations out of that book. It's a fantastic design. It's And it's scary. Yes. I mean, it's really scary. And this scene was full of tension because he hides under the bed and the door slowly opens like doors do with the knob turning and whatnot. Um, but then it opens and there's just nothing there. And he kind of looks back and he kind of looks forward and there's nothing so he starts to creep out of the bed and you're going, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that, right? And as he's doing that, he kind of backs back in and then he comes back out a little bit and then he turns up and realized there's got to be something on my bed. And it's just great how the camera angles work in here to show us from his point of view, the bed, but not enough of the bed that we can see there's anything in there not. And I mean, he slowly lifts his head up to look at the bed. It's so so good the way the scene is staged well and it defies it defies your expectations because yeah. they're building such tension to see what's on the bed you expect that that corpse to pop over the ledge at any moment but when he finally can see up there there's nothing there but then immediately he gets grabbed and pulled back underneath the bed as though the corpse were under there with him the whole time and he just didn't know it. Oh, gosh. And it pulls him not only under the bed, but it's as though it's pulling him into, I don't know, another... Yeah, in through the wall or into, yeah. And meanwhile, his friends are racing to his house and like they're in his house almost. And I'm thinking because, you know, I've seen a million of these movies that are targeted towards this age group. I'm thinking, oh, thank God, they're going to get there right at the last second, and they're going to grab him, and they're going to pull him out, and it's going to be fine. No. Nope. No. It gets him. (laughs) It gets him, and he's gone. He's gone for the rest of the movie. That is it. I I was surprised by that aspect of it, too. I really thought, I mean, big spoiler alert, but I really thought by the end, somehow some magic would bring all these people back. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that way at all. He's got these scratch marks that lead across the floor like he dug his fingernails in as it was dragging him away right to the baseboard of the wall. I mean, they just look at this and they're like, what happened? Uh, And now they're freaked out. Shock and Stella and Ramon convene at uh, the drive-in again, which is empty. It's the middle of the day. And they're talking about what they're going to do. And they try to burn the book. And they throw the book into the, the pot. And they try to set it on fire. And 
it just tips over and the book spills out. They can't burn it. There's also a monologue in there, I feel like, from Stella. First, Tommy disappeared. And then now Augie. They had their stories in the book. And it happens every night. Jesus, he did too. You don't read the book. The book reads you. Which mm. I thought was a really kind of interesting concept. I wish it had played out a little bit more. Yeah. I kind of wish that the stories that these people found themselves in were a little bit more personal. Now, Ramones is. And so I, I think that's kind of what the setup was of that. It is an interesting idea that, you know, these people are kind of selected for their stories for a reason. But like I said, it it really kind of only plays out that way with Ramon, and I guess Stella a little bit, because she has so much in common with Sarah. It's kind of why hers is a little bit personal, too. Yeah. When they try to burn the book, it doesn't burn, and <laughs> when they pour it out of the burn barrel, Chuck's like, Why? Why won't you burn? I hate you. I hate you. I hate you. God damn it. This is, this is why I don't read books. <laughs> 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 Which was my favorite line um, of the movie. But then they do some research. They go to the library, of course, mm. and do some research on microfilm. This is great. The classic research at the library scene. Yeah, the classic research montage. We get two in this movie. Mm. Bonus. And they find old newspaper articles about the family and whatnot. And they find out that there was uh, a black woman who lived on that whatever you want to call it, in their estate. And she had a daughter. And I don't remember if the woman had been hung or if they had just fired her or what, but there was some suggestion that this black servant had taught Sarah some black magic. And that leads to another plot point coming down. But they also find out that within one year of Sarah hanging herself, the entire family disappeared and not moved away, just disappeared. Like, mm -hmm. they didn't sell their estate, they didn't sell the mill, they just disappeared. And then the book starts writing another story, and it's the red spot. I'll let you take this one because you remember it so vividly. I think most people do. This is one of the more famous ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because it's gross. Because unlike the rest of the book, really, this is something that could conceivably happen. I mean... Maybe. <laughs> uh, well, be pretty unlikely, but probably not unlikely, but it's not outside of the realm of possibility. Stuff like this does actually happen. Anyway, so she's going back to play, and it's great. It's 1968. She's got the school play. It's Bye Bye Birdie, of course. I just... I just imagine my mom watching this going, oh, my God, I was like, oh, we, we did Bye Bye Birdie. <laughs> I mean, this, is so, this is so 1968. Anyway, uh, she's in Bye Bye Birdie, and she's in the dressing room. And, of course, this big pimple is really embarrassing her, and she can't really cover it up with makeup. It's just much bigger now. And so she goes into the, ba uh, the secluded bathroom and is in there, and she's poking and pushing at her cheek, and it's clearly super sore. Now it's just grown quite big on her cheek it's really red and it's got this little yellow spot in there and at the same time the other kids are seeing that there's another story showing up called the red spot and they see her name in there and so they're racing of course um to the school and as she pokes at it this little blink it looks like a hair pops out in the middle and she, god this is so gross and then she goes up like she tries to start pulling the hair out and when she lets go of the hair, it moves like a little leg. Ugh. 
<laughs> and suddenly a spider comes breaking out of it and tons of spiders come flowing out of her face and all over there just as the kids come in to the bathroom. So she's screaming. She's got spiders pouring out of her face and they're going all over the place. This story was, uh, I can't remember if it was called The Red Spot, but it it was definitely in the book and it's just this idea that a spider had laid an egg uh-huh. uh, in this woman's cheek that suddenly hatched and all these tiny spiders came out. And they get there in time and part of what we're seeing too is this shadow that creeps over it's kind of like the ghost of the sister who's coming in to sort of influence people right and Stella starts to notice this and so she she kind of sees this and she also sees I think a figure I didn't notice that I thought she just saw the the shadowy stuff but regardless she puts it together she says you know that that was her she was here she's pulling all the strings you know she's puppeteering all of this Mm -hmm. and they haul the sister out they haul ruth out on a stretcher i mean she's okay you know just her face is messed up so right right later on stella says something like well we saved ruth and he's like you didn't save anybody she's in the nut house for the rest of her life so there are still implications that she's not okay but they did at least save her life. And then they do... So they they found out about that black woman, and so they do some research into her, and they know she had a daughter, so they look for the daughter. And they find her, and her name is Lulu. She's played by Lorraine Toussaint, who um, has been in a lot of things, but uh, she did one season of Orange is the New Black, and she was a bad bitch on that show. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. I you, I get the impression that she's kind of senile. She doesn't really talk very much. Um, mm. But Stella picks up a music box, and it plays this haunting theme that um, you hear throughout the score. You may be the next. But they tell Lulu that they have Sarah's book, and she asks to see it. And she repeats what Stella had said from the beginning. Stories hurt. Stories heal. You shouldn't have taken the book. You made her angry. Stella says, well, did your mom or did you teach her black magic? And she's like, no, there, it's it's not magic. There's no magic. It's rage. It's rage that gives her her strength and her power. When Lulu kind of checks out, her daughter or caretaker, whoever it is, comes in and shoos the kids away. But she just kind of casually mentions that Sarah did not hang herself in the home that she died in a hospital. And so then, more research. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Hospital research. Mm -hmm. So they go to the hospital and they uh, try to ask for the records and the nurse behind the desk is like, yeah, we don't just give out records. Uh, Here's (laughs) a thing you can apply and get them in six weeks or something. But a doctor says, oh, I think we keep all those really old records in the red room. Um, and so they pretend to leave, but as they're leaving, some a big group of doctors is coming out of the locked door to the interior of the hospital. So they sneak in and they go in, and Chuck doesn't want to go to the Red Room because he's scared of it, even though they find a, a sign that says the Records and Evaluation Department. That's where Red <laughs> comes from. Yeah. But he doesn't want to go anyway, so they split up. Chuck goes off on his own and eventually starts getting chased around by staff. Stella and Ramon 
do find Sarah's file, and they also find this old-timey recording that's like a uh, wax roll yeah, um, wax I, that Ramon says yeah, that Ramon says that they used before the days of vinyl records. I'll take his word for it. No, it's true. I, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's a recording of Sarah being interviewed by her brother, who I guess must have been a doctor at yeah. the hospital. It's a little convoluted, yeah, but you're right. Yeah, I guess the idea is that only a brother could kind of get away with what he was doing. He's uh, delivering the electroshock treatments as well while he's doing this interview. So every now and then she just screams. It's pretty creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And he's asking her basically to confess to what the town has been saying about her, that she's been killing these children with her stories. And she says, I didn't do it. And she says, I tried to save them, but nobody would listen to me. You wouldn't let me out. It was the water, the mercury from the mill. You poisoned the water. So we finally get the truth of the story. I mean, it comes out here, and then it's reiterated later. But but we find out that what has happened is that the reason that this girl was locked up was not necessarily because she was evil or bad or an embarrassment to the family, but because somehow she had found out that the reason that children were disappearing is because they were being poisoned by mercury from the family mill, and she had apparently told somebody. As her brother continues to... Uh, torture her on the recording her voice changes and becomes more monstrous or demonic she says all right i'll tell you what you want to hear and at that point it becomes unclear if she's talking to the brother or if she's talking to ramon and stella Mm. because she starts telling a story and the story starts filling in in the book and it's Chuck's story, and it's called The Red Room. And God, this one this one is so simple. Like, there's really not much to the story. Yeah. But I still find it, it was so frightening. Like, yeah. I was just really impressed by how genuinely frightening the way that they presented these images. It was really scary. So his story basically is everything goes red in the hospital, which there could be a logical explanation for because the staff does know that there are these intruders in there, so they could be on high alert or whatever. But everything goes red. And Chuck is running through these hallways until eventually, at the end of one of these hallways, he sees this monstrous, gross, grotesque blob woman. (laughs) I don't even know how to describe her. With a creepy smile on her face. Yeah, and it's it's not like she's just an obese woman she's she's monstrous like her her head is too big and her face is too big and too flat and she just has this unmoving grin on her face and every time he turns to try to run away from her and run down another hall she's there 
at the end of every hall. And it's not as though she's just reappearing. It's just that she is everywhere at the same time. Like, Mm -hmm. there's many of her. And he can't escape. And the tension here is great, too, because, you know, he'll find himself at, like, a four-way intersection, and she'll be in three of the hallways. And so he only has the option to run down the one, but he'll get a little bit down that way, and she'll appear down that way, too. And eventually, he just gets cornered at one of those intersections and she just like envelops him in a hug and then literally envelops him into her body (laughs) and then he's gone yeah this is two of the main characters you know like the good guys um so far that i mean and it's not like ruth was a bad guy but you know, she kind of had the popular girl thing going for her or whatever. But these are two of your outcast characters who are supposed to be the heroes of the movie. And they're gone. <laughs> yeah. It's just uh, Stella and Ramon left. You know, I think there's some elements of this movie that are not fully explored that make it clear to me that they're setting us up for a sequel. We get so much almost a little unnecessary backstory about some of these characters. And there's kind of an interesting relationship between Stella and her dad. And Stella is clearly haunted by the fact that her her mother left and she doesn't really understand or know why. And her dad's a little distant, but they, they still have a very loving relationship. But he just doesn't really know what to do with her. Anyway, she comes home and has a moment with him. Um, but it's also vote night. So everything's kind of coming to a head as the election is being tallied uh, for Nixon. And Ramon is cornered by the cops, as well as Stella, because at the they're, they're caught, I think, at the hospital. And they're pulled in to the police station. The policeman reveals that Ramon is a draft dodger. That's why he's kind of new in town. That's why he's being so cagey. And, of course, he's a bit racist to him as well. And he decides he's going to lock them up in the jail. So he puts them both in the jail. It's only him and the dog in there. The lights start going out. The guy opens up this book that he's confiscated from them and sees that a story uh, is on there called Me Tai Do T Walker. They're screaming, like, what's the story? What's the story? Don't do whatever, blah, blah, blah. In the meantime, uh, he hears a noise. Uh, The dog is looking at the fireplace that's in this police station. Okay, I guess it's an older police station. We'll go with it. (laughs) (laughs) It's convenient for the story, though. Yeah. Um, The dog just is standing there, staring at this fireplace like there's something there. And pretty soon there's some movement, some motion. And a severed head just like in the story, completely drops down this fireplace and rolls over and opens his eyes and has this huge grin on his face and goes, me, Ty Doty Walker, which is nonsense. And does the dog just fall over? Or does the dog leave? What is the what happens? To the it, dog? it runs away. It runs away, right? I it think just it ran off. Yeah. The story. I the dog's back, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know you're really concerned about that. I went back. I, was. I read the story in the book, and it's a weird ass story uh, about a guy who goes to a, a haunted house with his dog, and this head falls. The dog starts replying, like the dog suddenly starts talking. Uh, and replying to this this voice that's coming. And when the head finally falls down and says that, the dog dies of fright. Oh. But then soon after the head, a whole bunch of other limbs fall down too. And this is gross, you know? I mean, these yeah. are big, disgusting, gross limbs. And you see the stumps and everything. Uh, and the torso comes down too. And everything kind of crawls together and gets sucked together into this not quite right giant man creature. It's just like the limbs came together just a little off, 
in every which way. It can kind of stand up, but it almost looks like its torso is on backwards and its head is halfway the wrong direction. Uh, and he starts coming at the cop and the cop screams and I think he gets the cop, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. yeah he, play, he breaks his neck. Break, oh, you know, yeah. Snaps and, his neck. It's brutal. Yeah, and, and you, you see it, you hear it. I know we keep saying, you know, how scary these things are. What sets it apart for me from other movies targeted at younger audiences is that these effects look like they could have been lifted out of any serious horror movie made for adults. Yeah. It's not toned down at all. You know, this, this creepy guy could have, you know, come right out of The Walking Dead or any other number of uh, movies targeted towards adults. It just, I don't know, I, I don't know exactly how to put my finger on it, but usually there's just something that's a little bit maybe more fantastical and a little bit less real looking right. when it's targeted towards kids. Well, nowadays... But we've also talked about how they never used to be that way, right? And people, I mean, this is kind of right. a throwback to that, really. I mean, this is fulfilling everything we said movies should be right now. Yeah. Not toned down so much for kids. So in that respect, it's... And maybe that's why I'm so impressed. Mm. Uh, because you're right. We have said that many times, longing for the good old days when they didn't tone things down for kids as much as they do today. Um, so, you know, great. Good job, filmmakers. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our suggestions. But the jangly... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Craig. <laughs> the, the, jang, the jangly man goes after Ramon. This is Ramon's story. And and the reason I said the whole, the, the book, uh, you don't read the book, the book reads you, that applies to him because this jangly man is taunting him, calling him a coward. And that's really playing on his fears because... He explains that he didn't want to go to Vietnam because his brother, you know, just days before he got drafted, his brother had been sent home from Vietnam in pieces, and uh, he was scared. And so this thing is preying on his fears and insecurities. Yeah, and made of pieces. Yeah. Yeah, right. This The guy, you know, it's, it's really effective. The CGI looks really good. Again, it's really dark, which plays in its favor but um it looks really good and the guy is played by a professional contortionist who i guess was on america's got talent and so a lot of his movement is practical they just kind of gussied him up in the face and stuff with the cgi he starts coming through the bars but somehow stella manages to get them out and they run out and ramon tells stella you need to get to the house the the big scary house and take care of this with Sarah. You've got to get her to stop doing this. Um, he says, "I we need to split up because the stories don't stop. This guy's not going to stop coming after me. And he's right, so they do split up. She runs off towards the house. He steals a cop car, you think, gets away, but then it turns out the jangly man is on the roof, and you know, there's a whole sequence where he's driving around trying to throw this monster off of the car. Um, eventually, he gets it on the front, like on the bumper, and he smashes it into a truck, and it falls apart, which I thought meant it was dead, but apparently it just fell apart so that it could get out of there and reassemble, and it keeps coming after him. And so then he heads towards the house, too. Meanwhile, Sarah is there, and her story has begun. And her story is The Haunted House. And basically what her story is, 
is she is experiencing what Sarah went through in that house. And even though it's not supernatural, it's just as terrifying as the rest of the stories. It's horrible. I mean, what yeah. basically what it comes down to is that she was just terribly abused by her family, especially once she learned their secret and she was a threat to them. You know, they kept her locked up, they chased her, they beat her, and Stella is kind of reliving all of this until she, because I guess the apparitions or whatever, think that um, Stella is Sarah, and so they capture her and throw her in the basement and lock her in the basement. And that's where, you know, the resolution finally comes. I thought it was fairly satisfying. It was. There's some neat touches, too, to this whole sequence because both Sarah and Ramon are in the house, but it's like they're in alternate dimensions or alternate timelines. Yeah. Whereas, you know, to Sarah, obviously the whole family's there and everything's fresh and new. And to Ramon, he's still being chased by this jangly man. And they're in a lot of the same locations, sometimes standing in the, exactly the same spot. And he'll get like a chill. Like Sarah's, this is like Sarah's ghost from the past or um, uh, Stella's ghost from the past coming. And he even gets under a table and finds a pair of glasses that are broken that are clearly uh, Stella's, but they look like they've been there forever. And then shortly after that, we see a sequence where Stella's under that table and this family drags her out and the glasses get left behind and stepped on. I mean, those are just really nice little implications there, you know, of, mm-hmm. of time travel and kind of the supernatural thing. But yeah, you're right. So she gets thrown in there uh, and uh, he's still being pursued by the man and he basically just yells at her, tell her the truth. Stella is in Sarah's room and Sarah appears. She materializes in front of her and she stands up and she starts slowly walking towards her and she looks pretty creepy and whatnot. But Sarah is basically telling her, look, I can tell the truth about you. I can write your story, you know, the way it should be written. But this rage has to stop, (laughs) you know, is basically is basically her message. What your family did to you. What they said, that's on them. What you do... This is on you, Sarah. That apparently gets to Sarah. She starts crying a little bit. Tears are showing from her eyes. She doesn't say anything, but she hands uh, a pen over to her and uh, oh, tells her to use your blood. And so Sarah... I'm sorry, Stella pokes herself with this pen to get her blood on it, and she starts writing Sarah's true story. Uh, and that is enough, I think, to make the monster go away. I think Sarah bas- uh, basically just calls off the dogs, and she disappears again. At that point, I thought, okay, that means the whole spell is broken. All the kids are going to come out of the woodwork, and everybody's going to join up. And and it, you know, it was all just a terrible nightmare that's over. Uh, and and that didn't happen. And I was pretty surprised at that part. <laughs> mm-hmm. I really expected this. Yeah, the spell is broken. Now everybody comes back, and that did not happen at all. Ruth comes back though, right? Yeah. Basically, we we go back to that monologue from the beginning about stories hurt, stories heal. If you tell them long, tell them enough times, they become real or something like that. Um, and so she does. She writes Sarah's story. I think it gets published in her school newspaper or something. She wins some sort of award for it or something. Ramon goes off to war, and Stella, in her closing monologue, vows. She says, "Chuck and Augie are still gone, but I know that I can get them back." 
Um, I know that the book has the power to bring them back, and we're going to bring them back. And then you see she's in a car, I think, with her dad. I don't remember, but you see that Ruth is also in the back, too. And her face is kind of messed up, but she smiles. So I think the indication is that she's better. Um, And that's where it ends. And I think you're right. I think they probably were setting it up for a potential sequel. And so, you know, maybe Chuck and Augie will live on one day, but not in this movie. No, I mean, she says something in part as they drive away, um, uh, but she's got the book in her lap, and you hear her monologue, and she says something like, uh, I know that I, that I can get my friends back, and the secret is in this book. I just need to find it. And so, right. I mean, that's pretty clearly sequel bait. And apparently a sequel is was announced that it would be, was in development, but we haven't really heard anything clear about it yet. And probably any movement on that would have happened at the beginning of this year. And as we know, a lot of things that were supposed to happen beginning this year put on hold so yeah we'll see we'll see if it happens but it's set up for one i I liked the movie i didn't it wasn't the best thing i'd ever seen actually i felt a lot about this movie the same way i felt for the guillermo del toro um directed movie that we were just talking about about uh, don't be afraid of the dark or whatever I, i thought it was fine a little more kiddish it followed the structure and general theme of a kid's movie, although it did have that edge like we talked about and generally was scary, but not so scary that I was terribly frightened. But it did subvert my expectations by not everything just being okay at the end. So it was a nice movie. You know, especially good for kids, maybe for families, little older kids. I don't know if I'll watch it again. I liked the tying in thematically and visually with the books. I thought that was nice. And like I said earlier, I really liked the fact that uh, it didn't follow that standard uh, anthology kind of thing, but actually had more of an more of a reason for the stories and a source for the stories. Yeah. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if they do have a sequel where it goes because presumably Sarah is pacified. So right. I don't know what she's going to end up doing with that book or how more stories are going to come out of it. But uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I, I basically feel the same way. It's not like my favorite movie ever, but I, I thought overall it was it was really well done. Yeah. Um, the the young the young actors were good. Uh, and and endearing and i thought that visually it was really cool to look at i mean there there were a lot of really pretty like outdoor shots in in broad daylight um and then you know in the it was never so dark that i couldn't see what was going on but it was dark enough to kind of make the cgi not look so cartoonish yeah i thought the effects were good i thought uh like you said it's not like i was cowering under my blanket or anything but I was just kind of surprised, like, wow, yeah, this is pretty legit scary stuff. So I think overall it was a success, uh, and I would recommend it, you know, if you were a parent, you would have to make that judgment call on your own, because it is pretty dark uh, in places. Yeah, don't hold us responsible Um, for this. (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know, if your kid's into this kind of thing and they understand that it's just make-believe and stuff, I I do think it would be a fun family movie if that's what your kid's into. But I would recommend it even just to any horror fan. Uh, I think it's a good movie not again not my favorite but a good solid movie worth worth at least one viewing well thank you so much frank and karthik for recommending this uh, to us it was a joy to watch and to be able to talk about if you have any requests you can find us online like i said write us a message and also go to our youtube channel see if you can get some more people to subscribe to that so we can do some more fun things with that as well 
please share this podcast with some friends. We are recording a few more episodes than normal each week. The goal is for me to just be able to put out maybe an extra episode every once or twice just to make up for those weeks where we've been a little late. And uh, we know that a lot of you are maybe at home right now uh, looking for entertainment. So we want to be able to fill that void for you in our very small way that we can. So until next time, I'm Todd. And I'm Craig. With two guys and a chainsaw. Bye.